0: Another welcome to you. Glad you're with us. We've prayed for you and asked God to touch your heart as well in a powerful way. Uh, my dad asked me to say that he loves and misses you all. So if you missed his his personal greeting a few minutes ago that we played, uh, I say that to you. He is over in Scotland. I'm so thankful he and Pauline have had this opportunity to travel, do a mission trip there, and visiting several missionaries and churches and doing the work of the Lord all the way in the U.K., if there's one thing that we want here at the home church, and that is to do our part in getting the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, everywhere, and uh, and also in here in our region too. I want to just also quickly thank everybody who's been involved uh, at the Lodi Grape Festival, going out there for the last Thursday, Friday, yesterday then, and then today. More of you will be going out there, spending some time, handing out gospel tracts, telling people about Jesus. That's what we want to do at the home church, make a difference in this region. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. And it's a joy for me to fill Dad's pulpit today and give a message from the living Word of God about the living God. So so listen up today, all right? As much as you pay attention for him, pay attention to me, okay, please. Um, I, uh, I want to also thank everybody who's just said, I'm praying for you. And uh, keep going and give the word. So thank you, everybody, for your encouragement and your prayers. I have prayed also for you. I've Many of you by name. I've prayed over this entire place. Every person that would be watching. I've asked God to touch your heart. And, um, and I pray that it would be what we all need to hear right now. This word from the Lord. We're going to take a journey through hope. It's a four-message series. It's this morning, and then tonight will be part two. Next Sunday morning, part three, and next Sunday night, part four, Lord willing. A four-message series on this extremely important but less discussed topic. I'm calling it Lay Hold of Hope. So there were two big reasons that I came into the ministry as a pastor 24 years ago. I was 19 years of age. Some of you are saying, well, I thought you were still 19, Pastor Luke. And, uh, and my, actually, my, uh, my wife just recently said uh, to the f- a photographer that was going to be taking pictures, can you do anything about this when you take the pictures on oh, my husband's head? So I know I'm not 19 anymore. I get it. But at, at that age, when you're coming into the ministry, I remember there were two big reasons that I was even doing this at all. Number one, I was just going to obey the Lord. That's it. I just wanted to obey God. I knew God had called me. And so let's do this. But number two, I passionately wanted people, wanted to help people come to know Jesus and be transformed. And when you're 19 and 20, though, you you don't foresee everything that that entails. You have a view of what the ministry will be like and what you're going to be doing. And maybe a difference that you can make in, in some people's lives. You hope, you pray, but... You really don't know all that that entails. One of the things that I certainly wasn't anticipating or thinking about was, even though you're supposed to think about that at the, when you enter, and that is all of the funerals that I would be a part of. Every single year. Many per year. And I find myself now in the ministry around a lot of death. I know many of you... Probably in your own families, your own life, you're around a lot of death. And by the way, your fu- in your future, is a lot of death. <laughs> and I've observed that uh, people, when they come to a funeral, and I, you're, I'm around a lot of grieving people, that everybody grieves differently. But I've noticed a remarkable difference between those who grieve with hope and those who grieve without hope. Several months ago, I was at a funeral, and people, one by one, got up to speak about the person who had died. And everyone was talking about the memories. They were looking back and about their loved one and saying so many sweet things, and it was all very good. But as time went on and people kept talking, I noticed something. Not one person spoke about seeing the person again in the future. Everyone was looking backwards, but no one was looking forwards. And it felt, it began to feel like a dark cloud, I, to me, because there was no real smiles. Everyone was talking about memories and weeping, but there was not a lot of smiling, and it felt very hopeless. And I actually think, I came out of, away from that funeral, per, that particular time, thinking, "This is, there's a difference in people who grieve with hope and people who grieve without hope. And it sparked my interest in really studying and thinking about this idea of hope. And and so that is where a lot of this comes from. But you compare that funeral that I was at to another that we had just a few months ago for our own little baby granddaughter in July. And uh, we stood out there beside her tiny little casket, uh, stillborn little baby. And we, we spoke about God's, we spoke about hope. We spoke about the future. We looked ahead. Or a funeral I did just a couple days ago out at a grave uh, for a wonderful elderly Christian woman. And all her family was there, and she had served the Lord and left a huge mark, a Christian mark, on her family and friends. And, all, and the talk, yes, was memories, and there were, of course, tears, but it was so hopeful. People were talking about seeing her again, and the, the days will be together, hopeful. And, of course, we know that there's still grief, there's still sadness, there's still loneliness. Yes, but there's that sparkle in the eye and that little smile on the face about the future. The Bible is very clear that there are people in this life that you come across every single day. That some are with hope and some are without hope. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and here's what he wrote. That at that time, listen to this, ye were without christ being aliens from the commonwealth of israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world so paul is writing and he's reminding these christians what life used to be for them you were once without christ you we're aliens and strangers from the promises of God. And then this very real statement that we see in, the, in people all the time, having no hope and without God in the world. And we see this in more than just funerals. And people are feeling that sense of hopelessness in everyday life. People are reporting feeling feelings of sadness, fear, loneliness anxiousness more than ever. All the stats are up. Everybody's talking about this. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're highly educated or not. The hopelessness that deep inside of people is a real thing. But the good news is in this verse that there's this wonderful little word in there, a four little word, <laughs> were, W-E-R-E, past tense. Paul is saying that's what you were. And anyone can cross over the line and be a person of hope and a person with God in this world. Hope is unseen, but it is one of the most powerful forces in all of the world. In fact, the Bible in the Bible, it's one of the big three. First Corinthians 13 and verse 13, it says, Now abideth faith, hope, and charity or love. These three, but the greatest of these is charity, love. See, when you strip it all down, when you strip everything down to the basics, there are these are the three most powerful forces in our life. Faith, hope, and love. We talk about faith and we talk about love a lot more, but hope is kind of that middle child that doesn't get as much attention. Then, of course, love is the youngest child that gets all the attention. But I, I have read now every verse in the entire Bible that has the word hope in it. That's what I did to study for this series. And I'm planning to unfold for you this morning how important hope is for you and how it will shape your everyday life. Get a hold of hope. Lay hold of hope. So let me start by giving you the definition of hope. Hope is very closely related to faith in the Bible, but it's different. So it's faith-related, but it's future-focused. Let me tell you what I mean. Faith is fully trusting in God and everything that He has said about everything. I'm trusting God in everything He has said about everything. He is trustworthy. I put all my faith in Him. I I have faith that God created the world. I look back and have faith that Jesus came and died on the cross. I have faith about everything in the past and the present. I'm putting my faith in the Lord. But hope is different. Hope is... Always future-focused. It's looking ahead. It's fully trusting everything that a loving and sovereign God has said about the future. I'm trusting you, Lord, with everything in my future. So hope is faith-related, but it's future-focused. I'm always I'm always knowing that better days are ahead because God's in control. The English word that we use for hope doesn't help very much in understanding what God means by hope. See, when we use the word hope in our daily language, uh, the English word hope, we usually mean uncertainty. For, for example, I hope I pass the test. I'm not certain, but I hope I'll pass it. I hope I get that raise. Um, I hope the barista makes the overpriced coffee that I just bought correctly this time. You know, I hope. I hope. I'm uncertain. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but I hope it's true. It's across your fingers. It's uncertainty. But biblical hope is totally different. It is, in Greek here, the word is elpis, E-L-P-I-S. And it's the opposite of uncertainty. It's actually, and here's what a lot of uh, scholars would say it means, is joyful and confident expectation or happy certainty. It is being joyfully certain about something that hasn't happened yet, but you know will. It's looking forward to something. You know it's going to happen, and you can't wait for it to happen, but you haven't seen it yet, but you know it's going to happen. And so you're just filled with joy, and you're excited about it. That's hope. And And listen, everybody, what you believe about the future has tremendous power in how you handle circumstances of life right now. Hope is powerful. You give a little hope to somebody, and everything changes in their life. You see examples of hope in the movies all of the time, especially in war movies. the The army is out there on the battlefield and fighting, and with the swords and the shields, and and you know heads are rolling and blood's flying, and everybody's fighting the battle, and people are getting tired and. You, and the, the the good guys are starting to lose. And then all of a sudden, on the, on the battlefield, they hear something. Over the hill, they hear, they hear marching boots. They hear the sound of drums. And guess what's coming? Reinforcements. They knew they were coming, and now they're coming. And all of a sudden, everything changes. They, they start to fight a little harder. They have a little more oomph. Everything, they haven't seen the reinforcements yet, but they know they're coming, and what has just happened? They have been filled with hope, hope, anticipation of the future. It has a huge effect on how we feel right now. It's an unseen force in my mind, in my heart, that has an incredible life shaping power. The medical world is very aware of the power of hope. Studies have shown that there is a remarkable difference in recovery. With patients who are filled with hope. True story of a little boy who is a burn victim, burned all over his body. He had been in the burn unit for months and months, just kind of wasting away. And one day, uh, they they decided that they were going to send uh, an English teacher. And they sent different teachers different days. But this English teacher, they asked her if you would just kind of go in the hospital and talk to the different kids and spend some time teaching English just to give him something to do and get his mind working. And so that English teacher, she came in there and spent some time with him and then left. The next days that followed, they noticed that this boy was had tremendous um, improvement. And they were wondering, what is going on? So the doctors came and they asked the little boy, what is the difference? Why why are you all of a sudden doing so well and you're smiling and think you're actually improving medically? And here's what he said. He said, I figured they must believe that I'm going to live if they sent in a teacher. They must believe I'm going to make it out of here. Hope. Hope. Somebody got hope. And be, that is believing in the future. Then, of course, you know, in the medical world, there's the placebo effect, of course. That's always an example of this. Whenever they do a pharmaceutical drug study, they give some people in the study a placebo, a fake drug. Why do they do that? Because what we expect, we humans, what we expect about the fu- future is so powerful in shaping uh, today. I mean, if I believe I'm going to get better with this little pill, I sometimes people just sometimes get better. Just based on hope, we're hope-based creatures. And one more really identifiable example that I want to share with you. Listen to this: Hope. You take two people. Take two people. Take two guys. They're working in a in a job, and it's a very mundane job. It's boring. No vacation. Uh, Eighty hours a week. Horrible working conditions. This is a horrible, bad place to work. Nobody would want to work here. You take two guys, you put them in that particular job, you tell one of them, though, listen, we're going to give you $20,000 at the end of the year for all the work you do. The other guy, you tell him, we're going to give you $20 million at the end of the year. Same exact circumstances, but but what happens after that? A totally different experience now. One guy hates it. He comes to work, he's grumpy, he pouts, he probably... Uh, gives up halfway through the year or less than that. They say, "No, this. I'm tired of this. This is horrible. But the other guy comes to work early. He whistles while he works. He has a good old time. He puts in the work. Why? Hope. Hope. He looks forward to the future. There's something to look forward to. Listen, everybody. This is important. It's not the circumstances that make you feel the way you feel. It's not. Your believed-in future determines often how you process and deal with the circumstances of today. Hope is a powerful thing. But what I want to talk about this morning is our ultimate hope. Because your ultimate hope about the ultimate future is the most important thing that shapes really who you are today. And what you think about that, and how you feel about that, and what you believe about that, shapes how you're going to live your life. And this is why we need the hope that only God gives. Christian hope is different than the world's hope and any other hope. It goes beyond any hope that, that anybody has. It's more It's more strong. It's more reliable. Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of the Nazi Holocaust death camp, a physician who came out of that and later said, that there was a difference, he noticed, in the people who uh, who survived the Holocaust and those who died. And he said it was what people believed about the future that helped them survive. And here's what he said. One of, one of the remarks that he said was this. Everyone needs a hope big enough that su- even suffering and death can't destroy. Everyone needs a hope big enough that suffering and even death cannot destroy. And that's what we're talking about here. That is Christian hope. That is something that not even suffering and not even death can stop. The best definition I've ever found for this, for Christian hope, is by the late Tim Keller, and let me share it with you. Christian hope is a life-shaping certainty that our ultimate future is the eternal love and glory of God. And the new heavens and the new earth. I say that again. It's a life shaping certainty that our ultimate future is the eternal love and glory of God and the new heavens and the new earth. See, when somebody is fully, fully locked in on what God has promised to the believer, that everything which happens to you, God will work for his good or for your good and his glory, that you will spend eternity loving God and Him loving you, that that's your future, that your future is guaranteed to be a real life in the real new heavens and the new earth, that is your real future, that is actually going to happen when that hits you, when you embrace that, then your whole life takes on a different view. The things that happen to you every day, the the little things or the big things, are seen in a totally different light. I made a list of things that I thought of that I'm able to do when my hope tank is full, when I'm really holding on to hope, when I know that my future is certain, when I know that I have uh, that I know that I have my future settled, and I'm just thinking about the Lord and I have eternity on the mind. Here's some of just the things I thought of. It keeps me from worrying about little things that don't go as expected. It keeps me from fearing big things that might happen to me it keeps me from an unhealthy focus on aging and death it keeps me from restlessness in my soul it keeps me from sadness from li- about life circumstances it keeps me from anger over unexpected annoyances it keeps me from anxiety over the state of the politics and society it keeps me from placing the wrong expectations on people or myself it keeps me from wasting my life on frivolous things and it keeps me desiring to be a giver and to make a difference in the the people around me. And listen, our view of the future doesn't just help with things like this. It helps. It goes much, much further. R.A. Torrey, one of the great preachers of uh, past generations, and he said that the great motivator for the early Christians was not changing the world or transforming the people around them. That really wasn't their motivation for what they did for Christ. He said it was their understanding that Christ was soon coming back. That was their greatest motivation. Here's what he said. Listen. While they were busy preaching the gospel in the world, they gave no indication that they expected this work to result at length in the transformation of the world. They were not looking for a change in the world, but for the personal presence of their Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ himself was their hope. And his appearing, they intensely loved and longed for. That, I hope you followed that. They weren't motivated by seeing the world transformed. Although we want to see the world transformed. They were motivated by their belief that Jesus was soon coming back. They were going to see their Savior. They, they, They would be stoned they would be fed to lions for Christ. They suffered persecution and weren't, weren't fighting back. Why? Because this future certainty that God was going to come someday, come back, set everything right. He, he was the judge and everything was going to be okay. And I will be with Jesus. They could go through anything. They could go through anything. First Thessalonians calls this hope in a future salvation a helmet. There is protective life-shaping power in, in hope. Now, when we talk about hope, we're not talking about a pie-in-the-sky feeling. Oh, it's just I just know things will get better. Oh, yeah, gee, things will get better. Biblical hope has a firm basis. And we're going to see that in a minute. We're going to open up a passage of Scripture now that I want to walk through. And um, this This is a passage of scripture I've always wanted to preach. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 20. So if you open your Bibles, Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 20. This is all about having hope and laying hold of hope. First, let me, we're going to look at one of the best illustrations in all of the Bible about hope. An example of hope. His name is Abraham. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11. And we desire that every one of you, you, every one of you believers, reading this, seeing this, we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. So now, real quick, we're picking this up mid-chapter, and we're doing that for time's sake. But the idea here is that God desires that every one of us give an all-out diligence to hope, This certainty about the future. Until that day that we finally receive everything that we're waiting for. Keep going, keep going, keep going, and, and with diligence have that hope all the way to the very end. Because you know it's coming. That's what he's saying. Now he goes on, verse 12. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience... Inherit the promises. In other words, do not be lazy on spiritual matters while you're here on this earth. You know, sometimes we can be lazy on matters of the heart. I've noticed that about humans, about all of us. You know, we won't neglect our body for food and the sustenance our body needs. And we won't neglect our desires For entertainment, we won't neglect those things in our life. But so often, we get slothful and lazy about matters of the heart. These matters that are far more important. We don't feed our heart. We don't give our heart what it needs to have hope. To be filled up with hope. And it's no wonder so many people are wasting. And spiritually sick. Spiritual strength. Requires diligence. So don't be lazy on these matters. Instead, be like those believers before you. It's saying, those people that have come before you who, through faith and patience, that word patience means long endurance, who through uh, faith and patience kept going strong until they finally received the inheritance that God promised them. And here is one of the examples of, of those people who have gone before you, who have set the stage, who have run the race before you to show you how it's supposed to be done. And his name is Abraham. Look at verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he, that is God, could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Let me explain this. See, and m- many people have heard at least some of Abraham's story. God made the first promise about a child, about having a child to Abraham, not when he was a young man, but when he was 75 years old. The promise to Abraham was, you're going to have a child, and through that child, then the whole world would be blessed. That child that would come from Abraham would be, we'd know later, would be Isaac, and then that the child then through Isaac's line that would keep going would then be Jesus, who would bless the entire world. But at the time that Abraham got the promise, at 75 years of age, he didn't see any of that. And at that time, he was already an old man, and his wife was barren. Sarah had no children. The likeliness of this happening was 0%. And then it went 25 more years, and still nothing. But Abraham never wavered. Interestingly, by the way, I read in, that in 2019 a woman broke the record for being the oldest woman to give birth naturally. Jinju Tian, who was 67 years old, 67 years old when she gave birth in late October. She already had, had two children uh, before that, but that was pre-1977. I mean, I don't know what to believe on this, but this is pretty amazing. But it's still not Sarah's 90 years of age. Sorry, Sarah still holds the record. But the amazing thing is that Abraham believed this. He believed God for this impossible thing. (laughs) We don't have hope like Abraham because we limit God. One preacher told about a painting that he saw. It was a painting of an old, burned-out mountain shack. It had just burned to the ground. The only thing left was the chimney. All the remains of that place were just strewn around everywhere. And outside, as you're looking on the painting, there is an old man standing there in his old grandfather-looking guy in his old and his long underwear, <laughs> and a little boy next to him clutching his overalls. And beneath the picture, the artist put the words, which I guess he felt like the old man was saying to the little boy. These simple words, but they are profound. He said this, Hush, child. God ain't dead. Hush, child. God ain't dead. That was Abraham. He looked around and said, God ain't dead. God ain't dead. And God is not dead. Things look bad. Things look impossible. God is not dead dead. It looks impossible, but God's not dead. And here in verse 13, it says that God made this promise. And since God could not swear by anyone greater, he swore by himself. Now this is interesting because God's promise, if God would just give a promise that on its own two feet, any promise from God is a 100% guarantee. But just to help Abraham be Even more confident, God doubled it up by swearing an oath on top of his promise. That's what it means by God swearing here. He swore an oath as a man would swear an oath to another man about something. You know, typically when, when we swear an oath, when humans swear an oath, they swear, it says, by someone greater than them. We, in the court of law, I swear to tell the truth. I don't know if they still say all this, but I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth was. So help me, God. We swear by a, someone greater. For thousands of years, swearing oaths has been a way for mankind to give the most binding guarantee possible. I swear. I. This is absolute. There is no higher thing that I can do than to swear an oath. Verse 16, that a little bit later, describes that oaths. End all of strife because it's a guarantee. Somebody makes that guarantee. But here we see that God Himself kind of condescends to swear an oath to a man, not because God has to, but to give Abraham even more confidence in trusting Him. Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. I told you that when you were 75 years old, but now that you're 99, I'm swearing an oath to you. Listen to me. I'm going to give you a child. You are old, you, your wife is barren, she is old, it is impossible. I know that. But I'm giving you a 100% guarantee on top of another 100% guarantee. You are 200% guaranteed to get this promise. And here was the actual promise, verse 14, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. The promise that there was that there would be a blessing that would come to the entire world through Abraham's seed, and he still didn't have any children. In verse 15, And so, after he, that is Abraham, patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham first got the promise when he was 75. He got it again when he was 99. And the Bible says he had Isaac when he was 100 years old. After a long time of trusting God day after day after, day after day after day after day after day after day after day, God finally kept His promise, as God always does. Isaac was born, and the promise now of the coming blessing for the entire world was set into motion. And Abraham was beginning to see it, but not till he was 100 years old. Jesus came 1,500 years later, and we are all blessed right now by Abraham's seed. God has fulfilled His promise You sitting here right now is a proof of God's promise. Remember, the reason that God brings up Abraham, though, is so that he will be an example to us of trusting God and having diligence in our hope all the way to the end. That we would learn to hold on to hope like Abraham did until we see finally the promise come to pass. So, in Romans chapter 4, by the way, it said that Abraham against hope believed in hope. Abraham had a solid reason against hope he believed in hope. He had a solid reason to hope in a great future. Do we have a solid basis for hoping in our future? Believers in Christ, those who come to Christ, do you is there something solid that we stand on that helps us know that we we can be confident, joyfully confident in the future? That's what I'm going to talk about next, the foundation of hope. And we see that here in the verses 16 through 18. Follow along with me. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that is the unchanging nature of his his word, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we, that's we, that's we reading this, we might have a strong consolation who has fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The point here is this. Just as God gave two unchanging confirmations, a promise and an oath, a 200% guarantee to Abraham, and because of the fact, (laughs) on top of that, that it is impossible for God to lie in either of those things, a promise or an oath, (laughs) then Abraham knew it would come to pass, and it did come to pass, it says. So then, the, the argument here is, every Christian can have the highest confidence in God's promised future for you. There is no higher confidence than what you can have in this entire world. If you've run to Jesus for refuge, for salvation, if you've run to Him like those Old Testament people would run to a city of refuge for help, if you if you have run to Jesus, then you have a hope that is set before you, that you can lay hold on. That's what it's saying. Every Christian has that highest confidence. If you run to Jesus, he will see you through all the way to the very, very end. God cannot lie to you. Folks, there is no guarantee in this entire world that comes even remotely close to this. You... We, as it says here, have a 100% guarantee on top of another 100% guarantee, and all the while knowing that God cannot lie. It's absolutely impossible for God not to come through for you. This is why it says here, look, that we have a strong consolation. A strong consolation. That word consolation means comfort. You have a strong comfort. You have a strong comfort every single day day with you it never leaves you you have it right there with you and at any moment in any situation you can tap right into that strong consolation and you get that when you take hold of hope when you fully embrace this certainty that of god's future promises now once you take hold of this and that's now let's look at number four the consolation this consolation of hope and this was the verse the phrase in this verse This is the one phrase I wanted to preach about all my life. I'm finally getting to do it. Verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Now, once you take hold of this hope, it's saying that this certainty of the future is an anchor for your soul like nothing else. It anchors you down. There is nothing else in this world that can anchor you down like this hope right here. The ho- this hope, it says, is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. The word soul here is the Greek word suke, is how you pronounce it, but it's spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E. It's where we get our word psychology or psychiatrist. It literally means breath or life. It means the person that you are in the deepest part of you. The person you are deep, deep down. It is the seat, it is it is the seat of our feelings, the, our desires, our affections, our aversions. In other words, it's the very place that you have emotions. It's the place where you have your thoughts and your wishes and your dreams. This is you, deep, deep down, we might say that it is the deepest heart of man, and God says that this certain hope is an anchor for your suke. It is, it is the, it is the anchor for the deepest part of who you are. This hope can keep your mind and your emotions from drifting away. This hope can keep you from being blown out to sea. Like an anchor, it can keep you being from being blown out to sea by the storms of life. Everything that's coming at you. Everything that's coming at you. This is an anchor for the deepest part of who you are. This hope can keep you from seeking deeper and deeper into despair. This hope can make you sing in prison. This hope can make you can give you a joy in the fire. This hope can help you face Death with courage. Psalm 42 and verse 5. Listen. This is what the psalmist said. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Listen, that word disquieted is an old English word. But what that means is, why is there so much rambling and noise in the soul? Why are you disquieted? Why, why aren't you quiet, soul? Why are you clamoring? Why do I lay down at night and, just, and there's just so much noise in my soul? Why are you cast down? Why is there so much noise? And then he preaches to himself, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He said, I may, it may be a little noisy in there right now, but I can put my hope in God because I know. I know I will yet praise him for this. I'll look back and praise him. Hope in God is both sure and steadfast. You can't see an anchor under the water. Anchors go deep and they hold. And you can't see them just like you can't see God and you can't see your future. This is why anchor is such a a beautiful picture of this. But you know he's holding you you know it is sure. You know it is steadfast. And this is what everyone really truly needs today. They need something sure. They need something steadfast to anchor their soul to. Not the flimsiness of man's thinking or the new opinions that are coming out every single day. If you anchor your soul to what other people are saying, you are just going to drift and flow and just be out in the waves of the ocean every single day. Every soul needs an anchor. And I can't leave us without finishing out this last statement here at the end of this chapter. The last statement of verse 19 says, And which entereth into that within the veil. And then verse 20, Whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this part about Melchizedek I'm going to have to save for another time. But it basically points to the fact that Jesus is perfect and a sinless high priest. But let me briefly explain this other part. It says that Jesus is the forerunner. This is a really wonderful word for you and me. It means that he entered behind the veil as a high priest. In the Jewish temple, there was several rooms and the most holy place, the most holy room, they called it the Holy of Holies. This is where a high priest would enter once a year behind the veil. Nobody else was allowed to go. And that was because it was representing the very presence of God. The high priest would enter that area and put a lamb, some lamb's blood on the altar as a picture of God covering the sins of the of all the people. And here is the picture now in this verse that we just read in Hebrews. Jesus walks behind the veil and puts his blood. So now it's picture that Jesus is the high priest, but he's also the lamb. He puts his own blood on the altar and and, in, and uh, pays for and cleanses all sin once and for all. Now he is in the presence of God in heaven as the forerunner. He's done all of that, and he's the forerunner. He's already there. And a forerunner is the ancient Greek word prodromos, which is a military reconnaissance man. It's a forerunner who goes forward. It's the military guy that goes first, knowing that everybody's about to come behind him. And so that is a great word for you, forerunner. Because there's no use calling Jesus a forerunner if there's not going to be any afterrunners. No point even using the word. There are going to be afterrunners, and it's going to be everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you are promised to be the afterrunner. Jesus is already there. He's entered heaven, and it means you're guaranteed to come next. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. I love this. Jesus enters heaven, looks around, and says, I take possession of all of this in the name of my redeemed. I am their representative, and I claim heavenly places in their name. (laughs) That's what Jesus does. Jesus already cleared the way. Every believer's future is as guaranteed as it could possibly be. And that hope right there, that hope is a life-shaping certainty. And that hope right there can keep your soul your thoughts, your emotions, sure and steadfast, no matter what life shoots at you, no matter how the waves come, no matter how bad it gets for you. What? So what are we a victim of again as believers? Nothing. You're a child of God. One old preacher, his name was Dr. Fred Craddock. He told the story about vacationing with his wife, and they went to Tennessee. And one night they settled into a quiet little restaurant they just wanted a nice little meal together while they're waiting for their food they noticed a very distinguished man and some white hair moving from table to table just talking to everybody and craddock leaned over to his wife and said i hope he doesn't come over here (laughs) i don't want to talk right now but sure enough the man came over and he came to the table and he said hey where are you folks from and uh, dr craddock said we're from oklahoma Ah, splendid state! I hear, but I've never been there. Sounds like a great place. What do you do for a living? And Dr. Craddock said, well, I teach homiletics at a seminary. Ah, so you teach preachers how to preach. Ah, I see, I see. Well, I've got a story to tell you. He pulled up a chair and sat right down, and Dr. Craddock said, oh, great, another church story, another preacher story. What's this going to be? And the man stuck out his hand, and he said, I'm Ben Hooper. When I started, I was born just over these hills here, and my mother wasn't married at the time, and so I had a pretty hard time in the neighborhood I was born. When I started school, my my classmates uh, had a special name for me, and it wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself during recess and lunchtime because just the things kids were saying to me were cutting pretty deep. But what was worse is I would go to town on Saturday afternoons and hang out, and but I could just feel like everybody's eyes were just burning a hole through me. Everybody knew I didn't have a dad. When I was about twelve years old, a a new preacher came to church, came to our church, and you know I would always go in late and slip out early in church. But one day the preacher was so fast with his sermon I couldn't get out in time, and I was kind of just going out with the crowd. And just as I was about to make it out, uh, I felt a big old hand on me. And I looked up, and it was the preacher. And he said, he then asked me, who are you, son? Whose boy are you? And I felt like this big weight now coming down on me was like a a big black cloud. Even the preacher now is going to put me down. But as that preacher looked down, he studied his face, and he said, wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You're a child of God. And with that, he slapped that young man on the back and said, Son, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. And that old old man looked across the table to Fred Craddock, and he said, Those were the most important words anybody ever said to me, and I've never forgotten them. And it was only later that Dr. Craddock said, I realized that this man, Ben Hooper, was a governor of Tennessee. And this is exactly what I'm trying to do for you today. I want you to know that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You've got a great inheritance, and go and claim it. Do not live like you're not a child of God. Go and claim it. Claim it. Amen. Let's, that's a, that is a truth. Here's one for you. Stop moping and start hoping. How about that? You don't have to give in. You don't. You don't have to give in. Lay hold of hope. Now next week, I want to talk about the things that you've got to do to lay hold of hope. And how to keep the tent, hope tank full. But the first requirement for anybody, and listen closely, this hope that I'm talking about, the the absolute, the, the main requirement, the number one thing, you have to be saved. You have to be saved. You must be a believer. That's what the Word of God says. You must come to a place in your life where you accept that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is done. When he says he's done, he died on the cross and that he rose again for you. And the Bible says, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have hope. Peter said, you have a living hope. That means it's there every single day. So say goodbye to the old life, please. And come to Jesus. Would everybody bow your head and close your eyes, please, this morning? Thank you. thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.